I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles up to the book of Mark, chapter 13. I'm going to be studying from there this morning. We're going to jump right on in. Um, in fact, I'm really wanting to cover the entire uh, chapter of, uh, of, of 13 today. And so I realize that may take uh, a, a bit longer than normal. I promise you that I'm going to give that time back to you this afternoon with a much shorter sermon. But Mark 13 is a very challenging passage that causes us, uh, many people, to, to look at it with confusion, causes people to look at it uh, with, with wonderment. What is being said here in this chapter? What is it that Jesus is trying to, to convey to His disciples? And what should the reader take away from this chapter? I want to jump in this morning and, and dig into this verse, these verses and learn what they can mean to us today, beginning with verse 1. I want to look at just the first two verses right now, uh, and then we'll go into the rest of it. But the first two verses are setting up a very important picture that we must see. He says, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So verses 1 through 2, it paints a very interesting picture to me because here you have Jesus walking out of the temple. His disciples are looking around going, look at this marvelous building that we are in. And Jesus has spent the last couple of chapters telling them in no uncertain terms, destruction is coming for this temple. All the way back in chapter 11 when He cleansed the temple and He calls it a den of thieves. And what he is doing is directly quoting Old Testament Scripture that was prophesying the destruction of the temple in that day, that it was going to be wiped out. He's telling them they, under, they, they need to understand this temple is not going to be here anymore. In fact, it leads them to ask questions similar to, well, what, what, what do we do? What, how, how are we supposed to survive without a temple? And so he's telling them again. And I don't know if it's that they've forgotten this teaching. You know, it... it Knowing the character and the characteristics of these, of these disciples, it's not past them to have forgotten already what Jesus has said. We've seen examples of that in other passages. Or maybe they're just confused. You think back to chapter 11. What did Jesus do in that chapter? He said, go into the city and there's going to be a guy and he's going to give you a donkey and he's going to do all these things and it happens. And then he curses the fig tree. And then what happens? The fig tree is withered. And over and over again, Jesus said it and it happened. And now Jesus has said the temple is going to be destroyed. And now they're walking through and maybe now they're going, I'm confused. All those other things happened. Why is the building still here? Whether or not it's either one of those, those uh, explanations, the, the response of Jesus is unchanged by either of them. These great, this great building that you see here, it's going to come to ruin. And starting here, what I want you to see, what Jesus is doing is Jesus, Jesus the Christ, Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, He's walking out of the temple. Did you notice that? Verse 1, as He went out of the temple. Now this is very important. Very important for us to see this as we read this passage because what's going to happen next in verses 3 and 4? Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, telling us, when will these things be? And what will be the signs when all these things will be fulfilled? So, did you see what's happened? 
I want you to play this, just back it up for a minute and play it back in our minds. Jesus is walking out of the temple with his disciples and he leaves the temple and he walks up and he sits down on the Mount of Olives to talk more about the sign of the destruction of the temple. Is that mind-blowing? It's mind-blowing to me. I love this. This is my favorite part of this, ver- of this chapter, my favorite part of what Jesus is describing here, because Jesus is putting on a play. And sometimes we miss that. I want you to hold your position here. Mark chapter 13, put your ribbon, finger, whatever you're going to use to mark that, and jump back to the book of Ezekiel. Jesus is putting on a demonstration for his disciples right now. Ezekiel is an awesome book about redemption and about the salvation of mankind. And at the very beginning, chapter 1, you have a vision given to Ezekiel, that's the name of the book, at the river Kibar. He's in Babylon. He's in Babylon with the captives. They're there. They're thinking, wow, things have gotten bad. They can't get any worse. We are away from Jerusalem We have been brought here and God has forsaken us because of our sin and and just when are things ever going to get better? And he gets this vision that ultimately says, and we're going to, you know, kind of, I'm not going to jump into all of this, but starting in chapter 8, he gets this vision that says, Ezekiel, I want you to go to the temple. He is, as he says, grabbed by his hair and carried all the way back to Jerusalem in vision and set down. He says, go into the temple. What do you see? And he goes in and he finds a hole in the wall. He says, start digging at that hole, Ezekiel. So he starts digging and he finds a door and he says, open the door, Ezekiel. And he opens it and inside are uh, 25 men. Likely, a lot of times people say, well, this is two from each tribe and the high priest. This is the priesthood depicted here. He says, what are they doing? In this secret room, they are committing secret sins. It is filled with abominations. It's filled with crawling things and things that should not be in the temple. And they are worshiping idols in there. And ultimately through chapter 8, he's saying the people are filled with unfaithfulness. Even in the temple, they're filled with unfaithfulness. In their homes and in their hearts, they're filled with unfaithfulness. And you take chapter 8 and you pick it up and you drop it on Mark 11. When Jesus goes into the temple and says, this is unfaithfulness. And he puts a stop to it and he turns over the money changers' tables. You can almost lay that over top of chapter 11 and chapter 12 of Mark and see the exact same things happening in Jesus' day. Nothing has changed. The people are still unfaithful. So then you get to chapter 9, and this is where things really start to get interesting. Chapter 9 and in verse 3 says, Now the glory of God, this is still the vision that Ezekiel is in Babylon but he's seeing a vision of what's happening in Jerusalem. The glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. So God, the glory of God, the presence of God sitting on the mercy seat. You remember the Ark of the Covenant had the, 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 the mercy seat with the cherubims that stretched over it. This is God's throne in His tabernacle, God's throne in His temple. And it says the glory of God, His presence, got up from there and went to the threshold. Now, I don't know about you, but a threshold in my house indicates a door. And so you see God's presence in this vision. Get off of His seat of mercy, the seat where you go to receive forgiveness, the seat where mercy is poured out. He's leaving His seat of mercy, and He's walking towards the door. And then we get to chapter 10. Chapter 10, and in verse 4, it says, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused 
over the threshold of the temple. Closer and closer, he's drawing to the door of the temple in verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple. This is the image that they are seeing while they are in Babylon. They're away from God. Feel like God has forsaken us. Where is our hope? Our hope has to lie in the temple. That's where we pray. We pray to the temple um, even while we're away from from Jerusalem, while we've been taken captive, our hearts are still to point to go to God. We've got to pray to the temple, and God just left. But where does he go? We have to read a little bit further in chapter 11, verses 22 and 23. God leaves, and he gets out on this, this vehicle that is described, wagon, these wheels and cherubims, and he gets out. The glory of God leaves that, and it says in verse 22, it says it, he gets onto the cherubim, And so the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels besides them, and the glory of God of Israel was high above them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain which is on the east side of the city. Now, what has Jesus just done? He has just walked out of the temple. God, in our midst, God with us, He has just walked out of His temple walked to the east side of the city, to the Mount of Olives, which lies on the east side of the city, stopped, turned around, looked back at the temple, and said, I'm going to explain to you about the destruction that is coming upon Jerusalem. Jesus is putting on a play. He is doing the exact same thing that God envisioned to to, to, to Ezekiel in those days. And all of that is to show us the point of what He's about to say as he's acting out the, the, these visions. As we read through the rest of the chapter, in Matthew chapter, back in Matthew chapter 13, why is this passage so hard to understand? It is hard to understand. But if we begin with the right context, Jesus is trying to show us exactly what I'm about to tell you about. And so, in verse 5, I want to start reading in verse 5, he's going to answer the questions that, that they have asked, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of all these things that all these things will be fulfilled. Verse 5, Jesus answered them, <clears throat> Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will be brought before rulers and kings for my, name, for my sake and for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you, And deliver you up. Do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. They said, what are the signs going to be? That's what they're wanting to know. And Jesus is going to give them the answers to these questions. And we're going to go over the answers to these questions in the order that they asked Him. But again, we have to be very clear here. 
what are the questions that he's answering? Jesus has just reenacted the vision of Ezekiel, virtually telling them the same thing that Ezekiel told them. The temple is doomed. The temple is going to be destroyed. And they want to know when. When is the temple going to be destroyed? That is the question they're asking. Jesus said, look around at these buildings. There's not going to be a stone left upon another. They say, what is going to be the sign given to us to know that the temple is going to be destroyed? When is this going to happen? And so Jesus begins with what the sign will be. And he said the sign is going to be deception. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be false messiahs. There's going to be things. And he starts that off saying, don't be deceived. Don't be tricked by these deceptions. There's going to be great calamity. There's going to be wars taking place and famines upon the earth and earthquakes. And there's going to be persecution. In fact, he tells them specifically, these disciples, you all are going to be arrested. And you don't need to think about what you're going to say. You don't need to plan for that. I will give you the words to say at that time because you're going to testify. But all these things are, are signs of what's going to come to take place, which is ultimately the destruction of the temple. And all of these are recorded for us. Most of this is recorded for us. The book of Acts is filled with the record of the apostles being arrested for their faith in God, for testifying before great, uh, great kings and, and, and government officials for God, being stoned to death for God, famines upon the earth, you remember that a lot of what was going on, even when we get to, to 1 Corinthians, they're taking up a, a collection. Why? Because of the great famine in Jerusalem. All of these things are going on. And sometimes people begin to argue, though. And they say, wait a minute. I don't think this is about the destruction of the temple. I think this is about the end of life on earth. I think this is about the second coming of Christ. I think this is about the final judgment. And I think we still need to be looking for these signs. And the reason they base that is because of one little thing that he says in here, which is the gospel will go to all nations. And that hasn't happened by 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. So he can't be talking about that or he's wrong. Well, I want you to turn over to passages like Colossians chapter 1. And listen to what Paul the apostle of Jesus Christ, the inspired writer, wrote in his message to the apostles in verse uh, to the uh, disciples in, in Colossae. When he said in verse six, talking about the truth of the gospel, he says, "Which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth." as it also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. He says again in verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, to which I, Paul, became a minister. And you think back over to Romans chapter 16, how he ended the book of Romans. And I like the way he ends the book of Romans, verse 26 of chapter 16. He says, But now... <clears throat> speaking about Christ being made manifest, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. Now he uses the very words of Christ there. That the gospel in verse 10 must first be preached to all nations. In verse 26 of Romans 16, he's saying 
It has been made known to all nations. The Word is out. It is no longer held up and and clustered into, into Jerusalem. It has been leached out into the world. So persecution came to Jerusalem. You can read about that uh, in, around Acts chapter 8. And he starts spreading out. The disciples start leaving because of men like, like Paul. People that were persecuting them causes them to run into all corners of the earth and they're taking that message with them. Was it prominent throughout the world? No. But it had been preached. It had gone out. Jesus says these are the signs that destruction is coming to the temple. And we need to keep that in its context there when we read these first 13 verses. As we continue reading, we need to see also that He's not done giving them signs. If you notice, He said in verse 13, these are the beginnings of sorrow. This is the, uh, some, tra- some translations you might read that, uh, about birthing pains. This doesn't, the, the, the tribulation, the, the great judgment that's coming, it hasn't got here yet, but this is the beginning of them. So verses 14 through 23, he's going to continue. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation, such as has not been, seen, has not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, whom He chose, He shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, He is there, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. So He's continuing, giving them these signs. Jesus gives them a great big sign right at the beginning of this, uh, of this text. And what it's supposed to do, as he goes on to describe, when you see this sign, it's supposed to spur you into evacuation. Again, very important to understand as we read these passages. They had a response. When you see these signs, you are to run to the hills, flee to the mountains. And so... As we look to this sign and try to decide what is this abomination of desolation that he talks about? What is this this mysterious sign? And I want you to note something here. He adds to this. Mark, I believe, adds to this. Some of your translations may include this in Jesus' words. I do believe this is Mark adding to what Jesus said. Let the reader understand. What that tells me is if we're going to read this the way it was intended to be read, we need to pause for just a moment. And we need to think about the things that he just said. And I want to think about them in light of the oftentimes claim that this is the return of Christ. This is the second coming. This is destruction of the world. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not, run to the mountains. If this is speaking about the destruction of the earth, 
As we know, the second coming of Christ. He will come and all things will be fervently destroyed. The seas will be destroyed. The valleys will be destroyed. The plains will be destroyed. And guess what? The mountains will be destroyed. Why would He tell them, go hide in the mountains when you see Me coming? When you see the abomination of desolation, because I'm about to come and I'm about to destroy the world. In fact, He's been telling them for the last several chapters, I'm going to die and be resurrected. And they're outright rejecting that. Peter's ready to fight Him. You're not going to do that. Over my dead body, you're not going to die. You remember that? And he says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. They're having a hard time even believing that he's going to die. So for him to say, all right, this is what it's going to be like when I come back and the world is destroyed and I want you to be in the mountains hidden is completely taken out of the context of these passages. We need to think about that. We also need to think about what exactly was the abomination of desolation. Because again, we, all of these things are pointing us to remember He is speaking. Verse 1, 2, remember? About the temple. That's still His focus. So what is the abomination of desolation? Well, the New King James Version adds a phrase in here, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. You might have not had that in your translation because when the King James Version was written, the manuscripts which we had found had that written in it. But later, manuscripts were found that were older than those. They were closer back to the time of Christ, and they didn't have it in it. And so a lot of other translations, I think the ESV and the New American Standard uh, leave it out, they said, we're not putting that in there. Maybe we'll put a footnote that later manuscripts added it, but we're not putting it in ours. But either way, whether your Bible has it in it or not, guess who said that? Daniel the prophet. When you go back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, he's talking about the abomination of desolation. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, he's talking about the abomination of desolation. Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, he's talking about the abomination of desolation. And every one of these passages, every single one of these passages, he is speaking in reference to this invading army. There is a force that is coming into Jerusalem and all of these center around the Roman Empire. All of these center at the days of Daniel about this empire that is four empires out. And that's exactly what we see happening in the day of Christ. You've had the Babylonians. You've had the Medes and the Persians. You've had the Greeks. And we're to that fourth empire, the Roman Empire. And that's the, that's the empire that he's talking about when he gives these prophecies in Daniel chapter 9. He says that there is an army that is coming and that army is directly tied to this abomination of desolation which is standing where it ought not be in the words of Jesus. We can help us to understand that a little bit more by looking at the parallel accounts because Matthew talks about this as well. Mark isn't the only one that recorded this statement from Jesus. In Matthew chapter 24... Matthew 24 and verse 15. Listen to how Matthew describes what Jesus said there. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. The holy place is a very clear picture of the temple. So this abomination of desolation that is somewhere where it shouldn't be, as Mark said, is going to be in the holy place. I want you to also look at Luke's account of it. Luke is, as well records his account of this in Luke chapter 21. And in verse 20, listen to how he says it. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, 
then you know that its desolation is near. The picture that we see of the abomination of desolation, standing in the holy place, standing where it ought not to be, it's a clear indication of something coming into the temple. When you add that with Luke's account of armies surrounding Jerusalem, you get a very clear and some 40 year off early in the, in, in the, in the future picture of exactly what happens to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., a Roman general by the name of Titus came in to put a stop between two warring nations, the nations of the Jews and the nation of Rome. The Jews had revolted and were fighting against Rome, and he was, Rome was sick of it. We're going to put a stop to this, and we're going to no longer treat them the way we have treated them in the past. We are putting down the might of Rome upon this. And so they march in, and they surround Jerusalem and besiege it. But Titus goes further than that. Titus, taking from some of the examples of, of predecessors who had fought against Jerusalem, marches into the temple. Here we have a, a Gentile standing inside the temple, something that ought not to be there. And he doesn't just go in and, and look around the temple and say, well, this is really cool. He goes in and he starts stealing artifacts. He takes the lampstands. He takes other articles of their worship. And on the way out, they burn it down. And they tear it to the ground. And Jesus is warning them about this. The abomination of desolation, we shouldn't see that in, in Daniel's account. We shouldn't see it in Jesus' words as any one figure, any one thing. It is a prophetic picture of Rome coming into Jerusalem and destroying God's holy temple. Remembering, that doesn't mean they destroyed God. They didn't destroy His home. He's left. Jesus walked out of the temple. He went up on the mountain to tell them this. And at this time, not only has He left the temple, He's in the true temple, the true tabernacle. Went back to sit with God at the right hand of power. But Christ is giving a warning to the people who remain. You think back to Ezekiel. The warning didn't come to the people in Jerusalem. Remember, they were in Babylon. Ezekiel is in Babylon at the river Kibar when the warning comes to him and says, look, this is what's going to happen. You see God leave the temple. He gives the, the, the instruction that the temple is going to be destroyed in that day. The Babylonians are going to come in. They're going to wipe out the temple in that day. And this was not so that the people of Jerusalem would, would know about it and have time to leave. It was to comfort the people who were in captivity. Now I want you to remember that people who are in captivity, they're the ones that are going to become the remnant. It's not the people that were... They were taken out of Jerusalem in captivity and, and it's woe is me. Look at how terrible my life is. The people that remained were the ones that were killed. The people that remained were the ones that Babylon came back and ultimately wiped out many, many more. And it was the ones that were taken into captivity that came back with Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, that group that came back and rebuilt. They became that remnant. Jesus is saying again, I want a remnant. There would be no survivors if it were not for God. But I have warned you, so you can flee when you see this coming. And God is still in control. What He is telling him is when you see the Roman armies coming, you need to get out. 
And you need to know that it's going to be hard if you're nursing. You need to pray that this doesn't happen in the wintertime because you're going to the mountains and you're going to be homeless. You're not going to have a place to live. But despite all of this terribleness that's happening around you, you need to see this as what it is. It is judgment upon a wicked nation and it is the redeeming and setting apart of my people. And when you read back through history, you know what you find? People like Josephus, they recorded the event of 70 A.D. And you know what they found? They found that hundreds of thousands of Jews were slaughtered in Jerusalem. Very few Christians died because they took heed of the words that Jesus spoke right here and there. They knew what He was talking about. They didn't miss the signs. They looked at it and they said, okay, we understand what you're saying. And when they saw the armies of Rome coming, and they saw Titus coming in, and, and they're, they're invading the temple, it's time for us to go. And we don't go to our houses, and we don't pick, pack our clothes, and we don't go and see if there's anything that we've left behind. We run, because destruction is here. That's what happened. He's telling them throughout all this, if you will listen to my words, if you will remember who's in control, and thirdly, you won't get caught up with the words of the people around you. It's important too. There's the Messiah. He's over there. He's come again. He said, don't get caught up with that. Keep your hearts on God and keep your minds and your eyes looking for the signs that I'm giving you. And you will, and, and you will survive this account. And then he goes and switches gears a little bit. In verse 24... Verse 24, he begins to describe the event. The event of what is happening. He says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then He will send His angels and gather together His elect from the four winds from the farthest parts of the earth to the farthest parts of heaven. I want you to notice what Jesus said. In those days after that tribulation. So what He's speaking to them is in the days when you see the beginnings of, of, of sufferings, when you hear the rumors of war and you experience the calamity and the gospel message is going out to the world, it's left Jerusalem, it's spread out to the whole world, and, and you see Rome's armies coming. You know, it's time to go. And after those signs, here's what's going to happen. And you know, people read this and they go, okay. I get verses 5 through 23. I see it now. He is talking about the temple. But this cannot be about the temple. Think about the language that's talking about there. The, the stars falling from the sky. This just simply can't be about a destruction of a temple. Josephus never recorded anything about meteorites coming down and destroying things. So what is this talking about? I want to say this morning, verses 24 through 27 are not about the second coming of Christ. Verses 24 through 27 really through verse 31, are still talking about that judgment of Jerusalem. And you say, well, what about the falling stars? What about the dark sun? What about the unlit moon? What about these strange meteorological, cosmological signs that what does that have to do with the destruction of the temple? 
want you to think of Isaiah for a minute. Isaiah chapter 13, he describes a very similar occurrence. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and He will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the pride. I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, and a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. That sounds like it's talking about the day of judgment. These great signs. The earth is being shaken and moved. Mankind is going to be more rare than silver and gold. You're not going to find man on the face of the earth. It sounds like what it's saying. We must remember this is apocalyptic language. This is language meant to paint a picture in their mind that's oftentimes something different to ours. If you go back to the beginning of Isaiah 13 and you read verse 1, you will find in no uncertain terms he's not talking about the destruction of the world. He says this is the burden or this is the prophecy against Babylon. Isaiah is talking about the destruction of Babylon when he says these things. This language, the stars falling from the sky, the sun being dark, the moon being unlit, the world being shaken, it's language that God uses over and over again to describe the fall of a nation. A nation that has risen against God and God has poured His wrath out on it and that nation is no more. Because when God destroys a nation, He destroys it. And they don't come back. When God poured His wrath out on Egypt, Egypt was done. Yes, there still is a country of Egypt today. No, it is nothing like the, the country and the power that it was in that day. When God poured His, nation, His, His, His wrath out on Babylon, Abilon, Babylon was done. When God poured His wrath and fury out on Rome, Rome was done. They don't come back. They'll never be the power that they were in the first century. They'll never be that again. That's what God is doing. And that's what He's just saying to the, to the Jerusalem uh, Jews, the, the nation of, of the Jews, the Israelites at this time. He says, I'm going to pour My wrath out on you. And you're going to be done. And we say, wait a minute. There's still Jews today. That's got to prove that this isn't talking about that. But they are not the Jews of Deuteronomy, of Leviticus. They're not the Jews of the Exodus that came out of Egypt. Because God said, here is what makes you a people of mine. You are organized and you are set up the way that I want you to be set up. You are of the tribe of Levi and you have these responsibilities. And you are of the tribe of Dan and you are of the tribe of, of Benjamin. You are the tribe of Judah. In 70 AD, when Titus came in and destroyed the temple, he destroyed every document, every connection that people had to who they were. They didn't just say, we're going to put our thumb down on you. They said, we're going to take your identity away from you. Because it's a lot more than say, look, let me flex my muscle and show you how strong I am. Maybe you'll get the picture. Now, Rome's been doing that for 100 plus years at this point. So you guys aren't getting it. We're the powerhouse. We're the force. And if you're not going to be Roman... You're not going to be anything. 
That's exactly what they did to the Jews. They destroyed them. It wasn't them. It was God pouring out judgment on a wicked, unfaithful, rebellious child that refused to come to Him, to return to Him. And whenever He sent prophet after prophet saying, please, come back. Give me what is owed me. They, they laughed at Him. They ran them out of town. They killed them. He said, I'll send my son. They'll listen to him. They said, we'll take his inheritance. We'll make our own kingdom. They killed him. And so God poured out destruction on the Jews. People say, well, wait a minute then. Okay, falling stars, dark sun, unlit moon, that is language that God uses of destroying a nation. But you can't say that the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory is anything other than the second coming of Christ. Again, I would say, no. You can say that. Because Jesus said that. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, as He is getting ready to be handed over to Caiaphas and they are questioning Him, Caiaphas, the high priest, asked Him a question and look at His response to Him. He said, It is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Again, this is language that is used to show judgment on a nation. But if this is talking about the second coming of Christ, we have to either conclude two things. One is Jesus was wrong. Because He hasn't returned yet. Caiaphas didn't see it. Or two, Caiaphas is an incredibly old dude still somewhere hidden around the world today waiting for Jesus' prophecy to come true to see the coming Son of Man. I would say there's actually a third one. The third one is this has absolutely nothing to do with the second coming of Christ. It has everything to do with the coming of judgment on a nation. You say, well, okay, what about the gathering of the elect? Doesn't that prove, isn't that what the, the judgment is all about? That the elect will come up and meet Jesus in the clouds and be gathered together for all eternity to spend with God? Yes, that's true. But I want you again to think about Ezekiel. This time in Ezekiel 36. Listen to what he says, I will take you from among the nations, gathering you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, and from your idols I will give you a new heart, and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. God is saying the same thing to Ezekiel that Jesus is speaking of here. He's saying, I'm going to gather my scattered people. In Ezekiel, he adds, I'm going to be doing something in doing that. I'm going to be giving them a new heart. I am going to touch them, uh, give them a new heart that's been touched by water and cleansed from filthiness. If you've read Hebrews 10 recently, that's going to sound pretty familiar. Because in Hebrews 10, verse 22, that's exactly what he says happened. Let us draw near. We were far from God. We were scattered from God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus is saying, not that you all need to look for the coming Son of Man, and, and it's going to be uh, the, the judgment, final judgment on the whole earth, and He's going to scatter, gather all the scattered people together. He's saying the nation of Israel is coming to an end. 
I am going to destroy it. And I am going to gather out of the world everyone who belongs to me. And that's exactly what began taking place in Acts chapter 2. There's one more verse that I want us to think about. Let's pick up in verse 28 and read through 31. All of this is still just completely tied together. He starts to begin teaching them a parable. He says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, verse 30 here, it's the key to understanding what he's talking about. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my, my words will by no means pass away. This generation, the generation of disciples, of believers that He was speaking to at that moment, will not pass away until all, all of the things that He's talking about in this passage, until they all take place. And He gives them a parable to say, guys, it's not going to be rocket science. You know whenever you see the, the trees begin to put leaves out, begin to put branches out, summer's coming. Winter is over. Life is coming back into the plants. If he was speaking to us today, he would say, you know in Kentucky when it's been hot and humid and muggy and 90,000 degrees and that cool wind blows in from the west, what's coming? Rain's coming. A storm's coming. You know it. It's not hard to figure out. And when you see these signs, you're going to know what's happening. And it wasn't going to be the coming of Christ. It was going to be the coming of judgment upon that nation. Again, jumping all the way back to verses 1 and 2. When will this, this building, this temple, this religion, when will this be destroyed? If you haven't done so already, if you're the type that likes to highlight, likes to underline, likes to put notes in your Bible, verse 30 is, the note, is a verse to do. Because so many in the world want to try and take these passages and try and turn them into this doctrine of, of things that are going to happen in the coming of, uh, of, of Christ and of destruction on the world. That's just simply not what he's talking about. We don't need to fear those things. Because the passages that we have read here this morning are describing the destruction of Jerusalem. That should remove all doubt as to whether this passage is talking about the end of the world or not. It's not talking about that. But it doesn't answer their other question. And I really love Jesus' answer to their other question. Remember they said, what are the signs? He said, here's the signs. They also said, when's it going to happen? Read the rest of the chapter. Mark chapter 13, verse 32. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you as sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to you all, watch. What's his answer to them when they say what is going to be the time? He says, I don't know. You're not going to know. It's my favorite answer to Jesus' question. It's the answer that we can't give to people, isn't it? Say, like, what about this? 
We cannot say, I don't know. Jesus could. That didn't somehow make him less God. He says, it's not up for me to know. It's up for God to know. Jesus tells them, no one knows except for God. But what that really means is, while you're not going to know the time, you better still be ready. You need to watch. You need to stay awake. And what I love is in the very next chapter, chapter 14, what's he going to do? He's going to take a handful of these guys that he's speaking with, and he's going to say, come with me to this garden. Watch and stay awake while I pray. Three times they fail that. Three times they fall asleep. The conclusion to that account is Jesus is captured by the Romans and taken into custody. I believe that was to teach them a lesson. Because if they're not watching and staying awake, the next time Rome comes in, it's not going to be Christ being taken to the cross. It's going to be their life. That's what he's warning them. Watch and stay awake. So we read this and we say, well, okay, well, fine. You've, you've shown, you, we, we've seen, this has everything to do with the destruction of the temple. So what's that have to do with me? I don't live in Jer Jerusalem prior to 70 A.D. Why would Jesus write something? Why would Jesus say something? Why would the Bible record something that doesn't have absolutely everything to do with me? Well, the truth is that there's a lot of the Bible that has absolutely nothing to do with you. We need to see that. We spend so much of our time reading Scripture saying all Scripture has to be, has to be about me. Or passages like 2 Timothy 3.16 can't be true. All Scripture is in prior and all Scripture is profitable. And Mark chapter 13 is profitable to you because it teaches you a valuable lesson. But it wasn't written to you. It was written to a people that needed that warning in that day. And we need to learn from their warning. We need to learn how that warning can apply to me. Because everything that I've said here uh, about this not being about the destruction of the world, but being about the destruction of the temple, temple, while that is true, it doesn't mean that the world isn't going to be destroyed one day. I'm not saying that Jesus isn't going to come again. I'm not saying that judgment will not be poured out. I'm saying Mark's not talking about it. Matthew's not talking about that. Luke wasn't talking about that. They weren't talking about the second coming of the end of the world. But I'll tell you who was talking about it. Paul was. Paul spends a great deal of time talking about it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, flip over there. This will be the last passage that we read, <clears throat> read this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in verses 1 through 6. Listen to what he says. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren. Times and seasons. Sound very familiar? When's it going to happen? What's going to be the sign? Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren. You have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You all are sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. And notice verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep. Let us not sleep as others, but let us watch and be sober. Watch and be of sound mind. What will be the sign of Jesus' return? Paul says you won't get one. He's going to come as a thief in the night. Two times in the past year, someone has stole a weed eater off my carport. 
twice. Now, you would think I would learn my lesson and stop leaving my weed eater on my carport. Two times they stole my weed eater off my carport. Not once did they come to me beforehand and say, I'm going to come steal your weed eater. This is going to be the sign of me coming. If they had, I would have moved it inside. And I would still have my weed eaters. Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. And he says, you don't need me to give you signs. You all are perfectly capable of understanding that we're not going to know when he's coming. But we need to be prepared. It's not going to be like the destruction of Jerusalem where signs were given. Jesus will come, but Jesus will come without a sign. So we need to be watchful. I want you to remember Paul's words here when he said that. When he said, I don't need to write to you about these things. I don't need you to try to figure out when he's coming. I don't need you to spend your time doing that. Because if you're spending your time trying to figure that out, you're not spending your time being prepared for when he gets here. But I want you to spend your time doing, brethren, and what Paul wrote to them, instead of writing to them about times and seasons, he said, let me write to you about attitudes. We're talking about in Bible class this morning. Let me write to you about actions, about words, about things of the heart, about the life that you should be living. Let me write to you about coming to Christ, being transferred into His kingdom. Because you know it could have been at the time of Paul, uh, them reading these letters, could have been in the next five minutes. Today, we're not guaranteed the end of this service. We're not guaranteed another five years, another five decades. We're not guaranteed anything. I know that God will come. I don't know when. I know that I need to be ready. And I know another thing. Verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 5. I know that God doesn't want me to suffer His wrath. For God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can we help you be prepared this morning? Can we help you make yourself ready? There are people the world over that look to things that are happening in Russia, in China. Uh, This is what's happening in Israel. These things are going on here and there. And look at all of these signs and you might have to be ready. The Lord is coming. Don't be caught up. Don't be caught up with talk about things that we've already been told we're not going to get signs of. Instead, be caught up with talk of a faithful God. A faithful God who loves you. He's given you all the words that you need to come to Him. If there's something that we can do this morning to assist you in doing that, won't you please let it be known. Come forward right now as we stand and as we sing the song of invitation.